Good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts 13. We are having the privilege today to talk about being freed by Jesus. This is like the best thing in the world to be able to, to preach. How you can be freed by Jesus. How people who are enslaved to sin can be free. And I know that's probably the first thing you think of that, oh, this is for people that maybe have come in here today and they're, they're not believers and how can they be freed by Jesus? And it is, but it is also about how people who have been freed by Jesus can escape becoming re-enslaved to sin. And if you're a believer today, you know that is our constant battle. That is our Romans 6, 7, and 8 constant battle about having all of our sins on Jesus, but then getting re-enslaved to certain sins. So to talk about being freed by Jesus is pretty amazing privilege, and it's really about how Jesus frees us to serve God's purpose. If you're a believer, that Jesus frees you to serve God's purpose. So take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13, and please join me by standing. I'm going to read a rather long passage of Scripture today, so if at some point you need to sit down, or if you need to sit down the whole time, that's okay. But Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 41, and here we have Paul's first recorded sermon in the book of Acts, where he is, is proclaiming freedom in Christ how freedom was planned by God, freedom was promised by God, freedom was purchased at the cross and then proclaimed by Christ's witnesses. So Acts 13, 13 to 41. This is God's word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made this people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness." And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, 
To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They found no guilt in him worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the whole, the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything by which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Lord, thank you for your word. May I be out of the way and your message come through clearly. I pray that by your spirit you would change hearts, that you would rescue lives, and that you would affect not only individual lives, but households and this church, and our community, even affecting people to the ends of the earth by what you do in us and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're talking about freedom in Christ. If you're a believer, you know that freedom. And if you're a believer, you also know that pull of sin that can be almost like quicksand pulling you back into enslavement to sin. Now, I know there are certain people that we would probably not deem worthy of forgiveness in Christ, of freedom in Christ. I think of Gitmo prisoners that would, would have killed Americans or had planned to kill Americans at Guantanamo Bay, they're, they're in prison, and we would say, I don't know if I would want them to be forgiven. I don't know if I want them to be pardoned. I don't know if I'd want them to be set free. Anyone on the list of the top 25 worst people that have ever lived, you don't want them to be forgiven. You don't want them to be freed. Stalin, Attila the Hun, Hitler, and others. But guess what? I deserve the death penalty. You deserve the death penalty. 
Because our sin separates us from God. And I know that people like to say, you know, there's a special place in hell for that kind of person. I didn't realize there was a special place in hell. Hell is a horrible place, and everyone who goes there are those who have rejected Jesus Christ, who have uh, scorned the gospel message. But there are scores of people who have committed heinous sins, who have come to faith in the crucified, buried, risen, exalted, and returning Lord Jesus Christ that have been freed by God to serve his purposes. And we're uncomfortable with that. We are totally fine with God forgiving us because we know what we did, but we're not as bad as those people over there, right? Wrong. We're all depraved. We're all deserving death for our sin. But what about evil dictators? What about murderers and rapists and serial killers? And and even some of us would have had trouble with the Apostle Paul. Not letting him in, are you? We look at someone else, we say, you're not letting her in after all she did. All the people that guy killed, come on. He's going to get freed? He's going to get forgiveness? But God's mercy knows no bounds. And so forgiveness of sins in Christ, is proclaimed to everyone. So you can be anyone from anywhere who has done anything and receive forgiveness in Christ and be forgiven and freed permanently, forever. Freed by Jesus. Now, spiritually speaking, you are either under a huge load of your own sin. Let's say you're not a believer, so you are under a huge load of your own sin. It's all weighing you down. You you are your own savior, and you're not working very well at it. You fail all the time, and and you're just buried in, in, in guilt and sin, and you're unable to free yourself. You're held captive by the devil. You're held captive by sin. And you cannot break free. Or you're a believer and you are fighting so as not to be re-enslaved by sin. All your sin is on Jesus. All your sin was paid for at the cross. But you know the, the pull, the magnet pull, the quicksand pull where sin seems to have this you know, super glue kung fu death grip on your soul and you don't seem to know how to break free and you profess faith in christ and and you want to walk in victory but you are walking in defeat this message is for you today because we're going to see how you can be free how you can have freedom in christ how how you can even not take your freedom for granted but know the joy of forgiveness. That's what we all want. In the book of Acts, we have seen a lot so far. Just last week, we we saw what an extraordinary church the church in Antioch was. How they had spiritual 
leadership and spiritual ministry and spiritual worship. They encountered spiritual warfare, but ultimately spiritual victory was theirs because as God chose people, the Holy Spirit is choosing, the church is sending those who are sent to go preaching the gospel. Satan is opposing the church, and even so, Jesus saves. And Jesus saves Sergius Paulus, and he is the, the number one politician on the island of Cyprus, and, and we see this, and this is really the, the run-up, this is the runway to this passage today. It's what happened right before, and, and through the book of Acts, we've seen this all along, that into a world dominated by selfishness and by sin, God sent a Savior, proclaiming freedom in Christ, that he planned before the world began, to save a people for himself who would be zealous to serve him. So we're coming to this passage, and what we see right away is there has been a shift in leadership. Previously it was Barnabas and Saul, who's also known as Paul. From here on out he will be Paul. But now it's flipped, now it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul is now taking the lead. He is now the main leader. Barnabas is not the main leader anymore. Barnabas seems to have weathered the transition well. Seems like he doesn't have too much of an issue with that. And they set sail for Paphos and come to Perga in Pamphylia. Now they've got John Mark, who is Barnabas' cousin, with them. Now there's all sorts of amazing background info, kind of juicy tidbits we need to know to help us understand the context in which this is all going to happen. This sermon that Peter, uh, excuse me, that Paul preaches in the synagogue is set up by a journey, literally 150 miles across the Mediterranean Sea to the south coast of Asia Minor, and they come to uh, the Cestrus River. They travel five miles up that river to the port of Perga. Now, Perga was one of the main cities of Asia Minor. It was a lot of people that lived there. We know this because there was a 14,000-seat theater. There was a huge gymnasium. There was a large stadium. There were three aqueducts supplying water to the city. The people there worshipped Artemis, known as the Queen of Perga. There were a lot of pagans there. There are some Jews there. And they come to Pamphylia, which is, this is a Roman province, a small Roman province located west of the province of Cilicia, where Paul was from. And it says at that time, John leaves them, goes back home to Jerusalem. We know elsewhere that he went back to his mom. There's all sorts of theories out there. Why did he leave? Probably the most common is, well, he was homesick for his mommy. He couldn't. He couldn't handle the pressure. He had to go home to mommy. Luke doesn't tell us why he left. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he had difficulty living in in the conditions they were living and ministering in a strange culture. Maybe he was not wanting to take the 100-mile journey on a, a narrow, winding mountain road to Antioch, Pisidia. Maybe he resents the fact that Paul is now the leader and not his cousin Barnabas. 
We don't know. Only God knows. What we do know is that there was such an issue with that that later Paul and Barnabas separate. They have a huge disagreement. You know what that is. Some of us can't get along in our own homes. Some of us can't get along in our own neighborhoods. Some of us can't get along in the church. We've got relational issues everywhere. So I think we kind of understand this whole idea of that Paul and Barnabas had an issue together. And they ended up saying, you know, we're not going to serve together anymore. We'll see that later. That doesn't get settled here. It doesn't even get brought up. It's just, hey, John leaves. Goes back. So now it's Paul and Barnabas. And they travel on. And they, they go from Perga and come to Antioch in Pisidia. So you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We were just in Antioch, church in Antioch. Yeah, there's, a, there's all sorts of Antiochs here, and, and there's, there's an Antioch on the Meander River, and there's an Antioch in Pisidia. It's 100 miles away from Perga. And they did have to go up a, a winding mountain road. Difficult. It's through the Taurus Mountains, a very rugged mountain um, section, and they had to cross dangerous rivers. There were two in particular. And, there, and in that area, it was known for robbers to come out from hiding in the mountains and, and steal your stuff. Maybe that's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26, when he says, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. Well, they make it. It doesn't sound like they got robbed this time, but there's danger, and they come to Pisidian Antioch, which is 3,600 feet above sea level, and it's a very difficult journey, and uh, on the Sabbath, here's what we know that happened, on the Sabbath, they go into the synagogue, and they go to church, they go to worship, they sit down, now if you go to a synagogue in the Mediterranean world in that time, you'd have benches on the walls, you'd have seats in the middle, and um, you'd have the men on one side and the women on the other, should we do that now, should we switch, should we, all the men over here, all the women over here? You good? You just want to stay the way you are? Okay. The other thing they did is there was hierarchical seating. All the important dignitaries were up front, and then all the people that had been there a long time and stuff, and then in the back were like the Gentile God-fearers who aren't Jews, but also people that were newer. Now, aren't you glad we don't do that here? You know, everyone's special and important at Grace Church of Orange. All right, we're not going to change seats right now. You sit wherever you want. They go into the Sabbath, uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and it says that after the reading of the law and the prophets, so there's a prescribed order that was happening in all the synagogues, and they'd read the word of God, and they would recite the Shema, they would re recite the 18 benedictions, the Shemone, they would read from the Torah and the prophets, and then there would be a sermon. Now, the rulers of the synagogue send a message to Paul and Barnabas, and they basically say, would you like to say a few words? Would you like to speak? You know, you come from out of town. You've taken the long trek up the hill to see us. Why don't you give a few words to the people? I love it. Paul just gets up. I don't know if he and Barnabas looked at each other and said, you know, are you going or am I going? Who, who, you know, are they racing each other to the front? I don't know. Years ago, I was at another, serving at another church, and our pastor at the time uh, fell asleep in between services. And me and another associate pastor, when it came time to preach, we're like, I want to do it. And he's like, no, I want to do it. And we're like walking up to the front, and he, he, someone woke him up. It's like, mm, 
oh man, that would have been awesome, just preaching a sermon off the top of our head, you know. We weren't, we weren't prepared for this, but we're going to do it, you know. But Paul gets up. I don't think he, he I don't know if he knew this was going to happen. This was a common practice, though, by the way. You're traveling, and they might just say, would you like to say a few words? And he gets up. It's almost like, what if I said right now, you know, uh, Steve, Steve Manthorn, how'd you like to come up here, just say a few words about what I just read in the Bible? Would you like to do that? <laughs> well, good, because you're not doing it today anyway. Even if you said yes, I'd say no. Mike Silvio, would you like to come up and say a few words about what I read in the Bible? No, you're not. Sorry. All right, not today at least. Not today. First hour, I was like, I know who I'm not going to ask because they will come up. <laughs> See, I asked the two polite people, right? Okay. Paul gets up. And, and you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say, hello, uh, we're here. We like your town. Thanks for being good hosts. We're looking forward to being with y'all for a couple days. And uh, God bless you and sit down. He didn't do that. Now, I don't know if they knew what was coming. My guess is they didn't know what was coming. Because Paul gets up and he motions with his hand like, okay, listen to me, people. And he preaches freedom in Jesus. And he tells them very clearly, making really good connections with them, that freedom in Christ was planned by God. And it was promised by God through the prophets. And then it was provided in Christ at the cross. And he's basically telling them, this is what we're proclaiming to you. I'm proclaiming to you. Here's his chance. He gets his chance. I don't know what you would do if you got your chance. Like, hey, come on up and talk. He gets up and says, I'm proclaiming to you freedom in Jesus from your sins, people. You can have freedom. You can have forgiveness. He preaches the gospel. This is awesome. He tells them freedom was planned. It's really the first thing he's, he's telling them. And he goes through Israel's history. He, he makes the common connection with the people. Remember, these are Jews and these are God-fearing Gentiles. And he's saying to the Jews, your whole history points to Jesus coming to die for your sins. He begins with a historical recounting of the exodus and the conquest and the, the period of the judges and the monarchy of David. And he's going through all of this, and I believe it's a mere outline. Do you really think that Paul just preached for 30 seconds? And that part right there, you know, 17 to 22, I don't think he only preached for that long. But he's, he's laying some common ground with the people. He's laying a foundation about what he's going to say about Jesus as, as the Messiah who's descended from David. He starts in verse 17 by saying, God chose our fathers, and he brought them out with a high hand, with a strong arm, out of slavery to Egypt. And he overthrew, verse 19, overthrew seven nations in Canaan. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, nations that were larger and stronger than Israel, Deuteronomy 7.1. And he says in verse 20, and all this took about 450 years. About 400 years in Egypt, about 40 years in the desert, and probably 10 years conquering the land. 
He's like, it's about 450 years of your history, people. And it was all God planning to send a Savior. And this plan, by the way, we all know this now, that it was before the world began. So this is, if you're a believer, you were chosen in him before the world began. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And then he gets to David, verse 22, and he says, Look, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. David succeeds Saul, who was a bad king. And, and here's a combination of two Old Testament passages about David. Psalm 89, 20, I have found David. 1 Samuel 13, 14, a man after his own heart. He brings together these two Old Testament passages, and he's telling them, God was planning this freedom that I'm proclaiming to you. Now, a plan is only as good as its author. You've been making plans your whole life, right? Some of you have plans for today, after church. Some of you have future plans. Some of you are saying, all my plans have come to nothing. God hasn't blessed my plans. I wanted to do this in life and that in life and this in life, and it just hasn't happened. Others of you are saying, well, it's clicking along, clicking along according to my plan. A lot of you are saying, if, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this or that. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. But a plan is only as good as its author. It's only as good as the one who sets it in motion. November 13th, 2009, uh, in the Netherlands, there were 4,491,863 dominoes that had been set up to, to, to one domino was going to start a domino fall that would hit all four million dominoes and, and it would just be one long string. You're sitting here today and just take a, a brief snapshot of your life, a little timeline of your life from the day you were born till today and, and think about how that you could never have planned to be sitting here today. And all the things that have happened in your life the ups, the downs, the winding roads, the, the brick walls, the dead-end streets, the cul-de-sacs, the, the long roads, the uphill, the downhill, the valleys, the peaks. You see, only God could have orchestrated my life up to this point. Sure, I've made a shambles of my life trying to do all these things on my own, but God is faithful, and isn't it amazing that he brought me to this day? I'm still alive by the grace of God, and, I, and, I, and if you're a believer, you say, I know his mercy. I know his forgiveness. And all the things I did along those roots have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. See, we make all sorts of foolish plans, but God's perfect plan was from before creation, um, and, and it foreshadowed. All the things that he's pointing to them about Israel's history was foreshadowing Jesus coming, and he's doing it by showing them God's saving acts, God's deliverance of his people through the years. A plan is essential. It's based on God's sovereignty, and it's not by chance. It is not by chance that you are here today. Just take your last week. You couldn't orchestrate that. I love how Sergius Paulus, we were looking last week, how Sergius Paulus was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
that he was astonished, blown away at the message of Christ crucified, buried, risen, exalted, and returning. I'm astonished that freedom in Christ was planned before the world began and that all the dominoes were set perfectly in place by God in every place, in every person, and that his plan, even though we've made a big mess of the world, his plan could not be thwarted. God's saving acts in history, all of it pointed to Jesus. And Paul is starting his sermon this way. All right, people, your whole history points to freedom being planned by God. And then he moves on and he says, you know what? It was also promised by God in the prophets. Verse 23, he says, from this man's descendants, from David's descendants, from his offspring, God has now brought to Israel a savior who is Jesus. Now, they might be getting a little uncomfortable at this point in time. They're thinking, who gave this guy the invite to speak? The Old Testament was very clear that the coming Messiah would be a descendant of David. Jeremiah 23 says, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. I love the fact that, that Paul here starts with the last prophet, John the Baptist. And he says, by the way, when John proclaimed before Jesus' coming a baptism of repentance, and as he was finishing his course, he says, I am not the one you're waiting for. In fact, I am not worthy to untie his sandal. There was a rabbi in that day that said, a a disciple ought to do everything for their master that a servant would, except touch their shoe. And John the Baptist is saying, I am not even worthy to do what I'm not required to do. That's how great Jesus is. That's how amazing Jesus is. He says in verse 32 and 33, God promised to the fathers, and guess what? He fulfilled it. He fulfills the promises of the Old Testament prophets. He takes him to Psalm 2, verse 7, where it says, Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you which predicts not only Christ's incarnation, but his resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus magnified his sonship, glorified his sonship. He takes him to Isaiah 53.3. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he says, no more to return to decay, he gave him the holy and sure blessings of David. And then he gets to the last and greatest promise in in this sermon, Psalm 16.10. He says, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And And he gives the example of David. He goes, David served God's purposes and then died and got off the scene. That's our job, by the way, as believers. You get saved, you come to faith in Christ, you serve God's purposes during your lifetime, and then you go to be with him. You get out of the way. 
Jesus is the main event. So David served God's purposes and died, and his body remained in the grave. And what he's saying is, however, the one that God raised from the dead did not undergo decay. He didn't die again. Remember Lazarus? A great story of of Jesus raising his friend back to life. What we don't see recorded is the day he died again. Because there was a day when Lazarus died again. But Jesus died once for the sins of all, never to die again. He lives and reigns at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is alive. That's why Paul could be standing there proclaiming freedom in Christ. He wasn't talking about a dead Savior. A promise is only as good as the faithfulness of its maker. We're making promises we soon forget. We're liars. We're not promise keepers. We are promise breakers. Satan is the biggest liar. He's the father of lies. We've been believing his lies for a long time. Oh, God didn't really say that. By the way, that one, that lie that was given to Adam and Eve, that lie keeps getting recycled over and over and over again, and even a lot of believers do that. Well, God didn't really mean that with this passage of Scripture. But freedom was promised in Christ and never once regretted, and and it came true. Paul keeps going, and he says, this freedom that was promised, that was planned and promised, was provided at the cross. Again, verses 23 to 27, he's, he's, the, the blood's just washing through there. He's telling them the, the promise was kept. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him. He's telling them the people in Jerusalem and their leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the rulers, the Sanhedrin, they were all guilty in the death of Jesus. They refused to believe the claims of Jesus and didn't recognize him as Messiah. So what did they do? And in verses 28 to 31, you've got this synopsis of the gospel that ought to be what we share when we share the gospel as well. They executed Jesus. They put him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead, and he appeared. He was seen by many. So Paul is presenting the heart of the gospel message here. This was the heart of the apostolic preaching. It should be the heart of our preaching, whether we're speaking to someone one-on-one in our daily life, or whether we're up here preaching the gospel, either way, uh, he, w- he, he died, he was killed, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared, and he was exalted, and he's returning. Paul says they put him on a tree. That's, that's, how, the, that's how the cross was referred to by a lot of early Christians, the tree. Deuteronomy 21 tells us, if a man is guilty of a capital offense, is put to death, and his body is hung on a tree... Don't leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him the same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Well, Jesus took our curse upon himself. All of our sin, the the penalty that we deserved, Jesus took that. And then for many days afterwards, of, after rising from the dead, he was seen. All these post-resurrection witnesses could vouch for the reliability of what Paul was preaching. 
Freedom is provided, he's telling them. You know, forgiveness in Christ is freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is forgiveness. Forgiveness is freedom. Freedom is forgiveness. All of us who all deserve death row for our sins. And so then, in the, in the last several verses, Paul just brings it and says, now I'm proclaiming this to you. He's very compassionate to them. He's very personal to them. And he's saying, I'm proclaiming this to you. Verses 38 to 41, he's telling them, it, you, you can be freed from everything you couldn't be freed from. All your works, all the trying to keep of the, of the, keeping the law, you couldn't do it. You can't do it on your own, but you can be freed. He says everyone who believes is going to be justified, freed, acquitted, not guilty. We got here the doctrine of justification by faith. There, there's a great Old Testament background to this idea. There's a great judicial, you know, forensic, legal background to this theological concept. Deuteronomy 25.1. When, a man, when men have a dispute, they are to take it to court, and the judges will decide the case, acquitting, in the Septuagint, in the, in the Greek uh, Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same exact word, justifying, freeing the innocent and condemning the guilty. So you apply that to people who put their faith in Christ. You apply it to yourself if, if you're a believer. That means that you have been freed. You have been acquitted of all your guilt before God. So all the guilt you feel on a daily basis, some of you believers, that you just keep beating yourself up about because of stuff you did, was covered at the cross, was washed in the blood, and you were freed. God offers in Christ total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. Acquittal from everything, without exception, he says, from everything you could not be justified by through the law of Moses. God is going to declare you righteous. He's going to justify you. He's, it, it's where you get acquitted in a trial and all the accusations of guilt and wrongdoing that God heaped upon you that have been made, now God pronounces you, treats you as if you're righteous. So not just you're getting a pardon or, you know, you're... Your sentence, your sentence is just, you know, commuted or something. No, as if you had never done anything wrong. I hope you can grasp this. I hope, I hope you're, somehow if you're a believer that your soul hasn't gotten hardened to that truth. And somehow you think, well, you know, I got salvation in Christ, but really I need to do the rest on my own. Now, if you had the opportunity to speak, I don't, what would you have said? Hey, say a few words to the people. Paul gets up, and it's like he's wearing a message board. He's like he's a billboard, and he just gets lit up by the Holy Spirit. And, and here's a guy who's been set free by Jesus, and his religiosity has gone bad on him. And he's speaking to religious people. And he's telling them, your religion's going to go bad on you, people. Here's the door to freedom. Here's the way in. Here's the way of salvation. Here's the way you can be forgiven. Here's the way you can be free. And he's looking at them. 
He's compassionately looking at them. And they've been toiling every single day. Their, their hearts are black as coal. They, 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 they thought that keeping the law was going to make them right with God. And he proclaims the most glorious freeing truth ever. This is the, 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 the message you need to cling on to. This is the most glorious freeing truth ever. That through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. That everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from all things. These people are toiling day after day and he's telling them there is a complete pardon for your sins. In fact, the, the very sin of murdering Jesus provided the sacrifice for all sin. That's the pathway to glory. Total forgiveness of sins for all who believe in the Lord Jesus. Paul is talking about faith and not the glib, easy, oh, I believe that and I'll believe it until I find something better that I like. Not that kind of faith. This is total and permanent, ongoing, persevering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That is a clear call to repent, to make a break with your old life, a public personal identification with Jesus. He says, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed, is justified. That is a clear call to believe. It is a present active participle. It means that this faith he's talking about is continuous, ongoing commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord. He says everyone who believes is freed. Anyone from anywhere who's done anything can be rescued through believing in Jesus. That's controversial, isn't it? Yeah, when you're preaching the gospel as God gave it, people are going to question what you're actually saying. Because it's not just a call to repent, and it's not just a call to believe, but he's also giving them a call to keep walking in freedom. He's having to take the medicine himself. But we all know sin weighs us down. If you're a believer today, you're like, I'm weighed down by sin. You're like living in Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 territory. And it's ravaging your soul. In fact, Peter tells us sin wages war against our souls. So here's this redeemed sinner telling others how to be saved, to be free. He's a beggar telling other beggars how to get bread. And I am, I am I'm blown away by the sheer humble, unashamed proclamation that Paul makes. Humbly because he was depraved, unashamedly because he'd been redeemed. He'd been redeemed. As we bring this in for a landing, I want to look at the last two verses because what Paul is saying is not now everyone home and have a good evening. What he tells them is, hey, people, you're responsible for what I just said. Just like you are, by the way. You're here today. You're responsible for what I've said. We have a responsibility for our sin. He's giving them a warning. He's telling them, hey, just because I announced it to you doesn't mean you acted upon it. 
You must accept freedom in life. You must choose life. So he says, he uses the words of Habakkuk 1.5. He says, take care that what the prophet said does not happen to you. And he's telling them, don't be scoffers. You're going to perish if you do. And then he says, I'm doing a work in your days you wouldn't believe even if someone tells it to you. He's telling them, some of you are not going to believe this. And we're not going to see their response today. In fact, we're going to look at that next week. Verses 42 to 52. I just want to look at his preaching here. And let me just speak to you if you've never yet been freed. If you're not a believer today and you're like, uh, yeah, all my sins are on me. I'm my own savior. Here's what you need to do then today. You need to run to Jesus. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved, to be freed. Because you know sin is a prison. And our sinful prison breaks always fail. There were prisoners in Brazil that dug a tunnel out, came up three feet short, came up in the prison yard. There was one escaped prisoner that got out of jail and ran down the road and knocked on the door. Lo and behold, it's the house of one of the guards. There were four prisoners who, who... you know, dug a hole through a wall to get out of the prison. The first guy got out and ran away, and the second guy got in there and got stuck. And there's pictures where you can see the guards are, like, taking pictures of the guy. He's stuck halfway through the hole. He was stuck and wanting to be free. Back in 2003, there was a, a climber, Aaron Ralston, who was trapped under a boulder. You know how he got free? He used a, a dull pocket knife to amputate his own arm. See, all your, all your attempts to get free are going to fail on you or cost you dearly. But Jesus sets it up for us in John 8, and he says, you're going to know the truth, and the truth is going to set you free. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. This was the Savior planned before the world began. This was the Savior promised in the prophets. This was the Savior who provided that at the cross. This is the Savior that Paul's proclaiming that I'm proclaiming. Let me say one last thing to believers. How about if you're free, but you've gotten re-enslaved to sin? And the whole weight of your sin is on Jesus, but somehow your foot has gotten trapped again. That's our problem as believers. We get re-enslaved to sin. Guilt, regret, pornography, fear, anxiety, greed, lust, power, control, abuse, victimhood, murder, hatred, religion, morality, All of these things and more can enslave you at any time because of our depravity. And we're always looking for a self-made way out. Well, I know Jesus forgave me, but what's ever going to think? I got to clean myself up. I got to figure this out. I got to dig myself out. I got to dig a tunnel to freedom. I'm here to tell you that only one Savior forgives and saves and frees and justifies. The very thing that Paul was saying to people that hadn't come to faith in Christ, he was saying to himself and Barnabas 
and any other believers that were there and saying, you have got to believe in Jesus. You have got to place your trust in him. Always. We're looking for all these answers on our own, and, and Jesus is the answer. If you're a believer, you've been freed by Jesus to serve God's purpose in the generation in which you live now until God takes you home. Galatians 5.1 says, Christ set us free. Therefore, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Experience the freedom bought for you and granted when you came to faith in Christ. Lord, thank you that we can live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Thank you that you've called us to freedom, that we should not use our freedom to satisfy our sinful nature, but instead use our freedom to serve one another in love. Thank you, Lord God, that sin is no longer our master. We are no longer under sin. We are under the freedom of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that we can declare with the psalmist that we have escaped because of Jesus. We will walk in freedom because you have promised freedom to those who believe in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're always breaking chains. We cannot break them, but you can, Lord Jesus, because you did at the cross and became a prisoner for us so that we could be set free. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.